Hello, my name is Rebecca Jones and I'm a barrister at 23ES in Manchester and I specialise in employment, commercial and chancery law. And in respect of my employment practice, I act for both claimants and respondents at all stages um, of litigation. Now, I'm going to talk to you today about misconduct dismissals and in particular, I'm going to be discussing some tricky issues uh, that arise and how best to navigate them, whilst also uh, raising some of the uh, recent cases that may be of interest. So in particular, I'm going to look at suspension. So when to suspend and when not to. Health issues, anonymous witnesses, warnings, including the significance of any previous informal and formal warnings, what to do when there are overlapping grievances and disciplinaries, and that is one that often uh, trips employers up, and sanctions, so uh, in particular considering alternatives to dismissal and the importance of consistency. So before I look at those, I'm going to briefly summarise the fundamentals. Now, I anticipate it's something that a lot of practitioners are familiar with because misconduct dismissals are often the bread and butter of an employment practitioner. But just to reiterate, obviously, Section 98 of the Employment Rights Act 1996 is the starting point. And that tells us that a dismissal will be fair if an employer can show, i.e. it is on them to prove this part of the test, that they dismissed an employee for a reason that related to their conduct. Providing that the tribunal consider, and it's important just to pause there to note that obviously uh, this isn't on a particular party to prove, so unlike the reason where the employer has to prove it, this is just a, a neutral burden, so the tribunal has to consider it that the employer behaved reasonably in treating that as a reason uh, for dismissal, having regard to all the circumstances. And obviously that's quite wide and I'm going to look at some of the things that may be considered. Now, the application of that particular provision is, of course, governed by the seminal case of British Home Stores and Birchall, which requires the tribunal to consider three things. Firstly, was there a genuine belief in the guilt of the employee? Was that belief based on reasonable grounds? And finally, did the employer carry out as much investigation as was reasonable in all the circumstances? And it's only if the answer to all of those questions is yes, will the dismissal be considered fair? But I think it's obviously important to remember that there is a band of reasonable uh, responses and it's only where the decision is outside of that band will it be an unfair dismissal. So essentially uh, no employer acting reasonably would have behaved that way. And the reason why that is important, and it's something that is obviously trotted out frequently by employment lawyers in their submissions, is that the tribunal shouldn't substitute their own findings about the events or their own view about what an appropriate sanction would have been, but objectively look at 
the employer's decision that they took and scrutinise that to see if that was an appropriate decision. Um, so in essence, they're not allowed to consider what they would have done if they were making the decision. And finally, um, the employer must have followed a, a fair procedure. And that's obviously termed procedural fairness. And that is also subject to a band of reasonable responses. So when looking at everything was what they did uh, outside of a procedural, um, a fair range of reasonable responses. I'm not going to discuss that too much in the context of uh, this talk, but um, as I said, that is just a, a quick overview of the fundamentals. And against that backdrop, I'm going to now turn to those issues that I mentioned a, a moment ago. And as I said, uh, the first one is suspension. Uh, and in particular, when is it appropriate to suspend uh, and when it isn't? Now, suspension is obviously probably the, the starting point when there's an allegation of misconduct. But it is also often the point at which things can start to go wrong. And I would suggest that a degree of caution should always be exercised when you're considering whether it is appropriate to suspend an employee. And the reason for that is because obviously if a suspension uh, is decided upon, it's almost um, indicative, certainly from the employee's eyes anyway, that um, they think the employer thinks they are guilty and that can sometimes lead to a case for a breach of uh, the implied term of, of trust and confidence. So, so my top tip really is that a suspension should not be applied automatically even if the contract gives you, uh, the employment contract gives you a power to suspend. And one issue that I sometimes see, particularly with serious allegations of misconduct, is there is sometimes a very quick decision to suspend. And I think often with serious allegations, that's when perhaps even more caution is required. And I pause just to note the case of Gogay and Hertfordshire County Council. Now, in that case, the claimant was a care worker working for Hertfordshire County Council and an allegation had been made against her that she had uh, abused a child in her care and she was suspended pending, obviously, investigation. And that case went to the Court of Appeal and they held that uh, suspension for an accusation such as that was likely to destroy trust and confidence and should only be made where there is reasonable and proper cause. And this caused difficulty for the respondent in this case as the information available at the time in respect of the allegation was rather lacking and the Court of Appeal made it clear that it does not follow that an employee essentially must be suspended merely because a matter needs to be investigated. And I think it's really important that other alternatives are, are considered. For example, can the employee undertake a slightly different role? Can there be a short period of leave? 
can they have some of their duties restricted? Uh, and also, I think um, in a post-COVID era, one that may be uh, particularly important is, can they work from home? And I think obviously I say in a post-COVID era because I think a lot of the organisations have been able to have their employees working from home and that may assist in obviously um, reducing any potential risk that you think uh, an employee may pose. And so if the answer to any of these questions is no, I think it's certainly going to be important for an employer to at least be able to demonstrate that they have considered those things and that they have documented it and that is one of my top tips for employment uh, issues generally obviously when the case gets to a tribunal a lot of the time what's being scrutinized is the decision making process and if that decision making process can uh, show a clear trail of documentation where issues were considered, that's obviously going to help in demonstrating that an employer has acted reasonably. So in particular, you know, have they um, looked at alternatives to suspension? What were those alternatives? Perhaps even why they decided they weren't appropriate. And if that's all documented, again, that, that's going to help. But um, one thing that I do just want to note is that suspending an employee without justification is not always going to be a breach of trust and confidence, as um, any practitioners will know when dealing with a breach of trust and confidence case. It, it comes down to a matter of a fact and degree in the exact circumstances of the case. Um, but I, I think it is always just something to be wary of in terms of um, suspension issues more generally. The ACAS guide uh, also actually suggests that most disciplinary procedures will not require suspension and should only be considered if there is a serious allegation of misconduct and working relationships have severely broken down, the employee could tamper with evidence, influence witnesses and or sway the investigation into the allegation. There is a risk to other employees, property or customers or the employees subject of criminal proceedings which may affect whether they can do their job. Uh, so I think again just helpful to remember that the ACAS guide itself specifically says that most disciplinary procedures will not require suspension. If an employer has decided to suspend, then obviously it's important that they have done so sensitively. And again, my, my top tips in this regard would always be an employer um, making sure they stress that uh, there is no assumption of guilt, that they make sure the reasons for any suspension are set out clearly um, and perhaps confirmed in writing that uh, suspended employees should obviously be kept in the loop as to where matters are up to. One uh, good thing that employers do sometimes is have essentially a point of contact so that they have someone they can get in touch with and see where things are up to. Any suspension should be the, for the shortest possible period, so perhaps once the key parts of the investigation have been completed, can they return? 
And the suspension and the reason for it should be kept confidential wherever possible. And I'd like to just pick up on a fairly recent case regarding suspension, um, and that is Harrison and Barking, Havering and Redbridge NHS Trust. Now, this is a case from the back end of 2019, but um, it is really a useful for reminder that suspension is not a neutral act, despite what uh, some employers may think. Now, it's a slightly unusual case in the sense that it's not an employment tribunal decision or employment appeals tribunal decision, um, but rather it's an application in the High Court uh, for an interim injunction. And the claimant in this case was the Deputy Head of Legal Services for the Trust, and she was a solicitor with around 30 years' experience. And it's important to just note these figures. Her work comprised of around 60% inquest work, 35% claims work, which included clinical negligence claims and personal injury claims, and 5% advisory slash teaching. Now, she was suspended essentially twice. The first one was in August 2019, uh, and that was on account of the fact that an external law firm had undertaken a review of of the trust team's uh, actions in respect of a case, and it uh, was suggested that there were concerns about the claimant's uh, conduct in relation to a particular case. She was signed off sick with stress, and prescribed antidepressants and uh, she didn't hear anything for over a month following her initial suspension despite uh, the initial correspondence suggesting she'd hear quite quickly. She requested some documentation so the relevant case file and that wasn't provided for some time. Now, uh, around a month later, uh, the defendant indicated that she could return to work, but that uh, it was only on the basis that she'd be doing about 5% of her role, which was the teaching part. And she challenged this because she said, you know, 60% of my work is inquest work, and there is no suggestion there's been any issues with that. But uh, they didn't permit her to come back to do that inquest work. And they were very slow in getting back to her with regards to the concerns that she had uh, raised. There was various back and forths. And she ultimately was assessed by an occupational health physician who thought that really, in order for her to get better, she needed to get back to work. And eventually, the defendant said she could come back, but only doing some off-site auditing. And again, the, the claimant wasn't happy about this and, and she refused on the basis that she thought it would essentially be a demotion. And she was then suspended for the second time for her failure to essentially uh, follow a, a management instruction. Now, as I said at the outset, this is not a, a, an employment tribunal case, but an interim injunction application. And therefore, the, the test that was being considered was whether an interim injunction uh, should be um, granted and obviously what they 
had to consider was, is there a serious issue to be tried as to a potential breach of implied duty of, of trust and confidence? And the High Court judge dealing with the case held that there was. Um, essentially, he expressed concern uh, about the claimant having, obviously, a professional background, there was no suggestion of previous issues, therefore she um, essentially had a, a high standard of, of professional integrity generally. Um, it was therefore difficult for the, the, the judge to reconcile that against her essentially being excluded from almost all of her normal duties. And it was noted there that there was no evidence of alternatives being considered. So that was going back to the point that I raised a moment ago. It's really important that you do consider those alternatives and, and that they're documented in some way so you can evidence it. And ultimately, she obtained a mandatory injunction permitting her to perform her duties. Now, injunctions are very rare in employment cases um, because obviously it's unusual for a court to essentially force one party to do something. Um, but this case does, in my opinion, serve as a useful reminder um, that obviously when you're looking at the um, implied duty uh, of mutual trust and confidence, where you know actions in relation to a suspension are clearly uh, excessive, that is um, a, a potential issue for any employer. And suspension should, certainly shouldn't be a knee-jerk reaction. Um, and I think particularly so if you're dealing with the head of a deputy head of legal. So um, in to, to, to conclude that point, really, um, I, I just reiterate the point with regards to uh, considering all options and documenting those, and, and obviously noting that any restrictions that are placed on duties um, are, are proportionate. So turning to the next issue that I said I was going to discuss, which is ill health. Now, this is an important one because if you're dealing with a, a, an issue of misconduct and there is any suggestion at any point that the employee has raised that this misconduct may have occurred as a result of uh, some ill health, this should be investigated and any failure to do so may make any dismissal on the basis of that misconduct unfair. And there are a couple of cases, um, EAT level, which seem to all support that conclusion um, but one I'd like to draw your attention to is British Telecommunications PLC and Daniels uh, and in that case a tribunal decided that an employer and in this case it was BT should not have dismissed an employee um, who had committed acts of dishonesty without obtaining an occupational health report um, to see if there were issues uh, relevant to his state of mind um, and mitigation and the EAT um, agreed with that and it is of note that it was it was said there and I'm quoting directly with BT, we are dealing with a substantial global concern with substantial facilities and resources at its disposal. The tribunal would have expected a reasonable employer in this position to have certainly written to Occupational Health asking for a full report prior to proceeding any further. 
So my advice, as I said at the outset really, is if there are any potential ill health considerations, then they should be um, investigated. And also obviously be, be wary that there could be discrimination issues if they aren't considered. Um, but obviously I think that's probably uh, the, the subject of a, a separate um, podcast, um, but, but always something to bear in mind. One case that I do just wish to draw to your attention is Metropolitan Police Commissioner and others and Ayo Yako. Um, and, and the reason I just want to draw that to your attention is because um, if an employee is not willing to engage with occupational health, then it, it may be that um, an employer was reasonable in dismissing without obviously obtaining that. Um, and that's exactly what, what happened in, in that case. So turning to the next uh, issue that I said I was going to cover, anonymous witnesses. I think really um, if you have a case involving um, an anonymous witness at um, investigation disciplinary stage, um, what you obviously need to be considering is how does that impact upon reasonableness? And, and really to, to put it another way, does an employer act reasonably if they rely on the same and essentially don't allow an employee to challenge it. Um, I think it's fair to say that employers should try to avoid anonymising witness statements wherever possible due to obviously the, the potential for disadvantage against uh, the employee and not being able to uh, challenge that. But like anything there are obviously exceptions and if there are in particular circumstances perhaps where there is fear of reprisals or, or something like that it may be appropriate um, if uh, you are looking at a case that involves anonymous witnesses and the case of Linfood Cash and Carry Limited and Thompson um, does set out the steps that may be appropriate to uh, for an employer to take and I think if you've got any issues like this it's really uh, a good idea to review that case in detail. Um, I'm just going to summarise what they suggest you should do if you do have an anonymous witness. Um, the statement should be reduced into writing and then anonymised. It, it should contain important information as to dates, times, information as to why certain small details are memorable and exploration as to whether there is any possible grudge. Um, there should then, if possible, be a further investigation arising out of what the anonymous witness has put forward to see essentially if there could be any corroboration. Tactful inquiries should be made as to the witness's background. Um, you know, essentially, can you be sure that they're a trustworthy source? And one of the final key points, if there are any questions of the anonymous witness that arise during the disciplinary hearing, for example, the hearing should be paused and the questions should be put to the anonymous witness in some way. Now, there was a, a fairly recent EAT case uh, dealing with anonymous witnesses um, in, in summer of 2020, and that is Ty, Tyron Limited and Howell Wynn Christie. And in that case, the claimant worked for a housing association uh, and he is alleged to have made uh, homophobic comments to a tenant. The tenant had provided two witness statements which were inconsistent 
and uh, they wish to remain anonymous and refuse to participate further in the investigation. Particularly, I think one issue, the disciplinary officer had not spoken to them. Now, the claimant was dismissed on the basis of those allegedly inconsistent accounts and the tribunal dealing with the case um, at first instance concluded that the dismissal was unfair on the basis that the respondent should not have, have um, accepted the complainant's evidence as truthful given the inconsistency. They appealed and the EAT allowed the appeal on the basis that the tribunal had fell into the substitution mindset, so the thing that I mentioned at the outset, the tribunal had considered what they would have done in the circumstances. Um, it was also noted that um, when looking at the credibility of the anonymous witnesses account, um, the tribunal had failed to demonstrate any um, good reason or logical and substantial grounds as required under the case that I've just mentioned to you, the Lynn Food case, for finding that the employer um, was not reasonable in accepting the evidence of that anonymous witness as being truthful. Um, so really, it's just a, a, an example of that in play. And uh, I think just a useful uh, reminder of the Lynn Food case. Now, the next point that I was going to talk to you about is warnings, and in particular, the significance of previous formal and informal warnings. Now, this issue is um, more important in cases where the misconduct is not gross misconduct. Um, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that in terms of sanctions shortly. But in the context of warnings where misconduct as i say is perhaps not gross misconduct an employer can take the following into account which is any live warnings including final warnings but they have to have been issued in good faith there has to have been grounds for issuing that warning and um, it must not have been manifestly inappropriate to issue that warning. And I think it's fair to say that tribunals are not keen to look behind warnings unless there is any suggestion of any of those things that I've just um, mentioned. So it was issued in bad faith, etc. Expired warnings uh, should be, in my opinion, treated with caution. But there is a difference between using an expired warning to essentially elevate conduct into a dismissible offence, which wouldn't be permissible, and having essentially regard to previous conduct, regardless of the fact whether that led to um, an expired warning when deciding the sanction. So essentially you'd be looking at the conduct rather than the fact that there was an expired warning. But that does involve a bit of mental gymnastics and um, a disciplinary officer may not be familiar with the nuances of that and, and they may fall into the trap of essentially relying on an expired warning. There is no magic in whether a warning is in writing or whether it's been um, given verbally, but uh, I think one of the key factors really is the nature of any warning that has been given. 
And uh, if there is any suggestion that in the course of the warning, it's been made clear to an employee that they're at risk of dismissal if they continue to commit acts of gross, uh, sorry, acts of misconduct, uh, and they then persist to do so. Um, that is where obviously you're going to get into a situation where an employer who then dismisses um, has acted reasonably. Now, the ACAS code suggests a staged approach to warnings. I'm just going to read the relevant paragraphs. They're 18 and 19. Where misconduct is confirmed or the employee is found to be performing unsatisfactorily, it is usual to give the employee a written warning. A further act of misconduct or failure to improve performance within a set period would normally result in a final written warning. If an employee's first misconduct or unsatisfactory performance is sufficiently serious, it may be appropriate to move directly to a final written warning. This might occur when the employee's actions have had or are liable to have a serious or harmful impact on the organisation. Now, I think it's fair to say what isn't clear from that paragraph is where an employee is dismissed for misconduct, where they have a simple warning as opposed to a final one. And it, it, some employers have um, obviously deemed that, that any second act of misconduct, when there is at least one warning but not a final one, essentially tips the balance. Um, so not following a staged procedure as I've just suggested. Now, um, there is clearly a suggestion there that if you haven't followed that stage procedure and you've used something to tip the balance, that there may be some unfairness there because they didn't know they were at risk of dismissal. Um, and therefore relying on something like that may be risky for an employer. But um, there's little uh, case law really that, that helps us. And um, I've had a case on a, a similar issue um, where I was for the claimant and it, it went against me. Um, I think really it's going to depend on the circumstances as it often does. Um, but I think what is important to, to note is obviously given that misconduct whether there has been a warning or not can be considered that in of itself is probably not going to be enough to demonstrate that something is unfair and you may think well that's slightly unusual given the point that you've just made with regards to expired warnings um, but obviously I think the difference there or where it would be distinguished is because expired warnings have essentially a date at which they will no longer be considered. The next topic is managing overlapping grievances and disciplinaries. Um, employees do often submit a grievance once they become aware that they're being investigated for misconduct or as a result of the disciplinary process. Um, these can be difficult to manage and an employee may suggest that any dismissal that occurs whilst they have an outstanding grievance is unfair, um, but uh, an employee may not want to postpone any disciplinary proceedings. So it's really trying to balance those two competing features. The ACAS code is not the most helpful in this regard. That actually suggests that the employer may want to consider temporarily suspending any disciplinary proceedings. 
Uh, but the case law, um, in particular those two EAT cases, seem to suggest that really only in the rarest of cases um, will that lead to a, a finding of unfair dismissal if you don't suspend the, the disciplinary process. And those two cases, just for your reference, are Samuel Smith, Oldbury, Tadcaster and Marshall and another, and Ginardu and Docklands Buses. Now, there is some further guidance provided um, in the um, non-statutory guidance on the ACAS website, and that really suggests that suspension may be appropriate when perhaps the, there is a conflict of interest with the manager holding the disciplinary, there is an allegation of bias within the disciplinary process, there is an allegation of um, selective evidence within the disciplinary process, or there is possible discrimination. Um, but the guidance, again, doesn't assist with any um, particular length of, of any suspension. I, I think one option really um, to, to deal with things, if there is any suggestion of that and you don't want to put a hold on disciplinary proceedings, um, is to try and change some of the key players. Um, so if there is an allegation with regards to the disciplinary officer, perhaps they can be swapped out. Um, you know, particularly if things are acting, being dealt with concurrently, perhaps have separate people dealing with the disciplinary and the grievance to make sure they're not being influenced. If uh, you do not suspend any disciplinary process, it may still be beneficial to permit the employee to continue with their grievance even after the dismissal. Um, I know obviously there isn't then the contractual right, um, but uh, I, I've had a case where that did happen and that wasn't one of the reasons why the judge held that the dismissal was ultimately fair, but it was something that the judge did um, consider when he was considering fairness overall. And the final thing that I said I was going to discuss was sanctions and alternatives to dismissal. Now, as I said at the outset, the test, of course, requires a tribunal to consider if an employer has acted reasonably in uh, dismissing on account of that particular reason. And, um, you know, it's, it's fair to say that employees do win cases where, despite there being a, a reasonable investigation and a fair procedure, the ultimate sanction of dismissal was not reasonable in the circumstances. So it's really important to have considered alternatives to dismissal. And while some offences um, can properly um, be said to be so serious that dismissal is the only uh, real option, it's unwise for an employer to state that. And it's something that you often see in minutes perhaps or in a letter, we have no option uh, but to dismiss you or you know, this is gross misconduct and therefore the sanction is dismissal. I think it's really uh, important to try and avoid the use of those sort of phrases because it's going to suggest that alternatives were not considered. And as I was saying before in um, a slightly different context, but what is important with any decision-making process is that alternatives were considered and it's been documented and that's going to help demonstrate that an employer has acted reasonably. Um, so 
there is a particular authority on that point, which is Brito, Babpool and Ealing Hospital NHS Trust. In that case, the tribunal concluded that a dismissal would always fall within the range of reasonable responses in cases of gross misconduct, but the EAT said that this was wrong, and although dismissal may be inevitable, once there is a finding of gross misconduct, there may be mitigating factors which suggest it isn't reasonable to dismiss, and they have to be considered. And some of the key points that do have to be considered um, are obviously length of service, prior disciplinary record, the relevant background to the offence, including whether there were any um, previous warnings uh, or, or similar incidents, whether there was any suggestion of provocation, and whether the employee has admitted the offence and showed remorse. And it very much can go against employees where they haven't done that, particularly if they continue that approach in the employment tribunal itself. And that's quite a good tip to remember when acting for claimants. You know, it can be important to try and speak to them and see um, you know, during conference if they're willing to accept you know, how it may be deemed from another perspective because sometimes continuing in, in that vein doesn't actually help. Now the final point um, is not to forget the requirement for consistency um, because obviously that features in whether somebody has acted reasonably because there is obviously an argument if uh, and another employee in the same circumstances wasn't dismissed, then you would not be expecting to be dismissed. But the test is whether it's truly par parallel. Um, so are they really truly similar circumstances or sufficiently similar? There are a couple of interesting decisions on this, particularly where you've got cases um, involving perhaps fighting and perhaps one person uses um, more violence than another. But I think the reality is, if that is the only issue, um, consistency, um, it, it may not be enough for a finding in relation to unfair dismissal, unless it really is inconsistent in very uh, similar circumstances. And it's important to uh, be wary of too much consistency and I just want to mention the case of Pamant and Renui UK Services Limited which is a case from last year. Now it is an ET decision so it's not technically binding but I think it's a useful one to know about from both claimant and respondent perspective. In that case the employer had a policy that everybody who failed a drugs test would be dismissed if they didn't resign and uh, the claimant worked for the respondent as a recycling worker and failed a drug test. He's over the legal limit for cannabis and he was subsequently dismissed. However, he had very good mitigation. Um, he took uh, cannabis for chronic back pain and he had an unblemished service record of 14 years. He was also said to be very apologetic throughout the process and also very cooperative. And the tribunal uh, found that his dismissal was unfair. Uh, so I think you know it is important that sometimes uh, having a sort of blanket consistent approach may in itself lead to a finding of an unfair dismissal. Um, it is of note, I think, in that case that the 
uh, employee wasn't a driver um, and perhaps there was less of a health and safety concern. I think perhaps a, a different finding may have occurred in circumstances where that sort of issue could have a very direct impact uh, upon health and safety. Um, but I think it is, as I said, just a useful case um, to remember and also to remind clients of in relation to um, their drug and alcohol policies. So that is everything um, I wanted to talk to you about today with regards to misconduct dismissals. Um, if you do have any questions, then please don't hesitate to get in touch with us um, at 23ES and all the details can be found on our website, 23es.com. Thank you.